Well, good morning. And my last name is pronounced Pertzer, um, but normally here in Guatemala I say Pertzer because that's how Spanish speakers pronounce it. Um, it's funny because often the R is left out and I'm, my name shows up as Putzer, which in English, as you know, Putz is not a compliment necessarily, not the worst thing either. Um, but uh, first of all, I want to express my condolences to the pastor's family for the loss of his mother. We'll be praying for, for you and your, your family. Um, and I just want to say what a beautiful time of worship it was this morning. The, the words of those songs were very appropriate for some of the things that we're going to talk about this morning. And it is a, a wonderful privilege and honor to be here with you this morning to share the Word of God with you. Uh, the title of the message today is Glimpses of God from Solomon's Temple Prayer. Glimpses of God from Solomon's Temple Prayer. And I say glimpses not because it's hard to find God in this prayer. It is not. He's mentioned everywhere. You can't miss him. These are glimpses because I will only highlight a few items about God. Also, what I do mention will be very brief. 35 minutes goes by fast, and there are a lot of verses that we're going to cover this morning. You'll forgive me if I summarize a few of them, or at least the content of a few of them, without reading. Although I was told that the clock in the back is stuck at 10 to 7. So we're in this timeless zone 35 minutes could seem like a very long time. But lastly, these are glimpses because I just like the alliteration of the, the title, Glimpses of God. Uh, this is not a comprehensive message about the person of God, just glimpses. But before um, we get into our passage, let's begin by placing this prayer into its broader historical context. God called Abraham, descendant of Adam, and Noah through Noah's son, Shem. God promised Abraham that he would make him a great nation as numerous as the stars of the sky. God promised him that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his seed. Abraham had Isaac and Isaac had Jacob and Jacob had his 12 sons. And through a series of events, the 12 sons moved to Egypt with their wives and children, and then the children of Israel became slaves in Egypt. After many years, God raised up Moses and through him delivered the nation of Israel from slavery in the land of Egypt. In the wilderness, God made a covenant or agreement with Israel whereby he would bless them in various ways if they would worship him alone and serve him alone, something that included keeping his law. God's law was not limited to the Ten Commandments. It included more than that. But because of their unbelief and disobedience, the Israelites wandered 40 years in the wilderness, and all but two from that generation died. Under Joshua... God brought the subsequent generation into the promised land. They took possession of some of the land. Then came the time of the judges when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
Israel cycled through years of freedom and then years of oppression, the latter because of their disobedience to God, their unfaithfulness to God, abandoning God. When oppressed, they would cry out to God and he would send a judge or a ruler to deliver them. At the end of the period of the judges, the people cried out for a king like all the nations. And God said, to paraphrase, be careful what you ask for. Among the warnings, uh, one in particular had to do with the perils of large government, though we'll talk about that another day perhaps. He gave them Saul as king. Saul forsook God and removed, was removed from the throne. God gave the kingdom to a man after his own heart, David. And we'll say more about David later, but one detail about him is that uh, David wanted to build a temple for God. God allowed David to proceed with planning and preparations for the temple, but he did not allow him to be begin the actual construction of the temple. And the reason that he gave was the, the, the much bloodshed at David's hand. And so he was not allowed to build the temple, but his son would. Solomon began to build the temple in the 480th year after Israel came out of Egypt. And this, according to 1 Kings 6.1, one Old Testament commentary places that date at 967 B.C. In that verse, by the way, in 1 Kings 6.1, and the idea that Israel came out of Egypt, or that the temple was uh, built in the 480th year after Israel came out of Egypt is a verse that's very important for biblical chronology, in particular the traditional date of the Exodus and other dating that we are able to do because of it. But Solomon completed the temple in seven years, making uh, this the 11th year of his reign, the passage that we're studying today, and the month is September or October. So that brings us to our passage in 1 Kings 8, 23 to 45. And this passage tells us about the temple's inauguration in Jerusalem, the verses prior to the ones we're going to read. And Solomon's reign is off to a, a good start. In the verses leading up to our passage, the Spirit of God, the Kavod Adonai, descended into the temple in the form of a dense, perhaps dark cloud. It was a historical and visible manifestation of God's intimate presence, blessing, and approval. And the visible manifestation of God was so encompassing, so overwhelming, that the priests were hindered from working. They had to cease from their work in the temple. And Solomon is standing before the altar of God. His hands are spread, and the leaders of Israel are gathered around. We have infer from verse 54 of, of the 8th chapter that at some point Solomon falls to his knees. And Second Chronicles 6.13 explicitly says that while Solomon is praying, he is on his knees. Solomon begins to pray this beautiful prayer. And the first glimpse of God that we want to note from this prayer is God is unique and without equal because of his covenant faithfulness. God is unique and without equal because of his covenant faithfulness. 
Let's read 1 Kings 8.23. He said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. God, of course, is completely unique because he is the only true God. He is unique because he is the creator and sustainer of the creation. He transcends the creation, and that makes him Lord over the creation. That also makes him independent of creation. His existence does not depend on anyone else or anything else. He does not need us to exist. Yes, he loves us, but he does not need us to exist. He is self-existent. The designation that Solomon used to begin his prayer was translated in the version we're using this morning as Lord, and that's normal. That's a, a, a perfectly fine translation, but we observe that the name used is not Adonai, the Hebrew for Lord. It is God's covenant name. And that covenant name is similar to the Hebrew verb for to be. When Moses asked God's name, God gave him this name and explained it to Moses as, Eya asher eya, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you to me, has sent me to you. In other words, God is the self-existent one. As such, God is the only one who is worthy of all our worship. Now, all of that is true, but here in our verse in 8.23, Solomon mentions God's uniqueness, his superiority, because he is faithful in keeping his covenant. Another word for covenant is contract or legally binding agreement. We could say that God is faithful to his promises. This is true for one, because unlike man, God cannot and does not lie. If God says it, he will do it. This verse tells us that it's also true because of his chesed, his loyal love. And we'll come back to this point probably later on uh, in the evening tonight in part two of, of the message. There are other reasons why we can say that God is uh, faithful in keeping his covenants, keeping his promises, but these two will do for now. God has made several covenants or legally binding agreements. Solomon, here in this passage, has the Mosaic covenant in mind. Uh, he also has the Davidic covenant because verses 24 through 26, he specifically mentions his father, David. So let's read those verses now, chapter 8, verses 24 through 26. Keeping his covenant with those who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant, my father David, that which you have promised him. Indeed, you have spoken with your mouth and have fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Now, therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, keep with your servant David, my father, that which you have promised him saying, you shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel. 
If only your sons take heed to their way to walk before me as you have walked. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word, I pray, be confirmed which you have spoken to your servant, my father David. Now, there is a lot that we could say here, and we simply don't have the time. But Solomon seems focused on the immediate fulfillment of God's promise to David in terms of his own person and reign, Solomon's person and his reign. The the line of kings will continue. The Davidic line of kings will continue uh, after Solomon. Some will be good and some will be bad. But I would like to take a step back and get a, a broader picture of what's going on with the Davidic covenant and also fast forward to mixed metaphors there. Take a step back and fast forward at the same time to the ultimate fulfillment and to God's end game as far as the Davidic covenant is concerned. The giving of the Davidic covenant is recorded in Second Samuel chapter 7 and there God promised David that his house and his kingdom would endure forever and that his throne would be established forever. The ultimate fulfillment of that promise is found in none other than Jesus the Messiah. Jesus is the son of David, completely obedient and holy without sin. Jesus' adoptive father, Joseph, was a descendant of David. Jesus' biological mother, Mary, was also a descendant of David. Jesus is an eternal king who has conquered death and will live forever. Now you might recall what the angel Gabriel told Mary as recorded in Luke 1, 31 through 33. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. God kept his promise to David, not to mention his promise to Abraham. We all benefit from that covenant faithfulness because both covenants converge in the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior who gave his life for humanity and rose from the dead to reign forevermore. Those from every nation under heaven who have placed their faith in Jesus will live in that eternal kingdom, in God's presence forever. We will be with God forever because of God's covenant faithfulness. Again, God is completely unique and without equal because of his covenant faithfulness. Verse 27 of chapter 8 gives us our second glimpse of God. It says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. God is big. In fact, he is so big that he is everywhere at once. The theological word for this, as many of you know, is omnipresent. God is omnipresent, with both parts, the omni and the present, coming to us through Latin. The temple Solomon built was too small for God, and Solomon knew it. 
Although God visibly manifested himself in a special way in the temple, he was not only in the temple, nor was he confined to the temple. Solomon mentioned several times in the prayer that God lives in heaven. We also just read that Solomon does not limit God to heaven. God is not confined to his heavenly temple any more than he is confined to an earthly one. No doubt you know that God is here, in this room, in this sanctuary. He is present in a special and intimate way in each and every believer in Jesus Christ in this building and around the world. He's present in the physical space between each person in this room. But this building is much too small for God. God is everywhere in Guatemala, but Guatemala is too small to contain God. God is everywhere in Latin America, but the region of Latin America is much too small to contain God. The whole planet? Yes, God is there everywhere in the planet all at once, but not only there, he occupies the entire solar system at once. The whole Milky Way galaxy, the entire universe, which is calculated to be as much as 28 billion diameter, light years diameter, light years in diameter, 28 billion light years in diameter, uh, assuming that we are near the center of the universe. And there is good reason for thinking that Earth is near the center of the universe, but you will never hear that on Discovery Channel or learn about that in an astrophysics course. God is beyond the waters above the heavens, the ice that seems to encompass the entire universe, according to scripture. Wherever the universe ends, and it does end because it is finite, God is there and beyond. The spiritual realm, the realm of the dead, any other realm that could conceivably exist, God is there because he is infinite. No doubt Solomon read Psalm 139, which was written by his father David. The psalm declares the truth of God's omnipresence so beautifully. Psalm 139, 7 through 10, just a portion of this psalm. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make, make my bed in Sheol, Behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. But just like Adam and Eve, who hid from God in the garden, hid from God in the garden after their sin, or at least were thinking that they could hide from God, we are quick to forget or we like to block out in our mind that God is wherever we are. We act like he's not there when we are tempted or in sin. We doubt that he is there when we are in need. But God is present everywhere, always. In verses 28 through 45, we see the third and fourth glimpses of God. 1 Kings 28 through 45. This is a long passage, so please bear with me as we read it. 
Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God. Listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this house night and day, toward the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, to listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this place. Listen to the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear in heaven your dwelling place. Hear and forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and he comes and takes an oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge. Your servants condemning the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, if they turn to you again and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain, because they have sinned against you and they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and of your people Israel. Indeed, teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land which you have given your people for an inheritance. If there is a famine in the land, if there is pestilence, if there is blight or mildew, locust or grasshopper, if their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and spreading his hands toward this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you have given to our fathers. Also concerning the foreigner who is not of your people Israel, when he comes from a far country for your name's sake. For they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm when he comes and prays toward this house. Here in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls you, in order that all the people of the earth may know your name to fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. When your people go out to battle against their enemy by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord toward the city which you have chosen and the house which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. Again, there is a lot here in these verses. I would like to highlight two truths that undergird this portion of the prayer. These two points or realities about God provide a foundation for this scripture or are taken for granted, assumed uh, to be true by the author, known to be true by the author, by the, the speaker Solomon. From verses 28 through 45, words that have to do with appealing to God, such as prayer, entreaty, requ request, cry, confess, 
seek, mercy, praise, oath. Those words weren't necessarily here in this translation, but would be accurate renderings of the Hebrew words that are in the passage. Those kinds of words are very frequent. We heard them often. In fact, those different words are mentioned more than 20 times from verses 28 through 45. And they're mentioned following verse 45 in the second part of the passage that we'll look at tonight. Solomon says that fulano will pray, or so-and-so will pray. Words referring to God's response, and those words mostly have to do with God hearing the prayer, occur 13 times in the same portion from verses 28 through 46. The basic understanding is that God hears the prayers being made. This means or even requires that God knows what's going on. He knows the situation. In fact, he knows every situation and every detail of every situation. He's never unaware or in the dark. He's never caught off guard or surprised. He's never tricked or fooled. The joke is never on him. God doesn't even have to hear you say your prayer because he knows every thought of everyone. Think about that for a moment. He knows our deepest, most intimate, sometimes most darkest thoughts, secrets, our greatest desires, the thoughts or intentions of our heart. He knows them all. He knows everything. And he doesn't just know everything about us. He knows everything about every conceivable area of which there is something to know. God is the expert and the originator, with the exception of evil, of course. The fancy theological term for that is omniscience, a word that also comes from Latin. God is omniscient. God knows everything, past, present, and future, He has always known everything, independent of when. God knows everything real and possible, even though there are some theologians that would like to deny the possible part. With open theism, that is not true and unscriptural. God knows the possible. He is the only one with that ability to know everything with that attribute or that perfection. Does that not compel you or drive you to worship him? To literally bow down before him? I hope that it does. And by the way, on an aside, I love the, I don't know the word in English or Spanish or any language, but the thing is you have there that you can fold down to kneel down before God, to prostrate yourself, to go on your knees before him. And in my humble opinion, I think we need more of those in our in Protestant churches so that we can humble ourselves physically before our God. And I hope you all take advantage and put those to good use because we serve a mighty God. Verse 39 in the text we read is clear about God's omniscience. Solomon, as you might recall, is the author of inspired scripture. So we can take this as true, including many Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. He prayed when speaking of God, 
Render to each according to all his ways, whose hearts you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. Speaking of God's omniscience. Of course, that God knows everything doesn't mean that we shouldn't tell God our situation, that we shouldn't approach him in prayer as Solomon does. We definitely should, and scripture tells us that we should, and we have examples of that even from our Lord Jesus who prayed. Paul tells the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 to pray without ceasing. James tells his readers in James 4.2 that you do not have because you do not ask. Asking is an act whereby we acknowledge our dependence on God and his ability to help in the situation. Jesus, of course, instructs us to pray in his name, which makes our prayers distinctly Christian and not just theistic. So going back to God hearing the prayers, the hearing means that God is aware of our prayers. He is omniscient. But in this context, Solomon suggests or has the expectation that God will also act on the prayers, on the prayers of Israel in this context. God's acting presupposes that he can act. It points to God's omnipotence. That is, again, another fancy theological term for God can do anything and everything for God being all-powerful. God can do anything that is within the constraints of his character. In other words, God cannot and will not do things that are sinful or wicked. He only acts justly, only does good. And if someone might object and think that's a limitation to God, then they have a bad way of seeing, uh, understanding these concepts. You don't find all that explanation in this passage about God's omnipotence, but certainly hints or implications of it. For example, in verse 34, Solomon says, Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel, and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. So as Solomon prays in the event that Israel is exiled, and that is something that would happen in the future on, on multiple occasions, um, Solomon rightly understands that God has the power over foreign peoples, foreign armies, foreign rulers, foreign gods, foreign gods, or spiritual forces that might oppose Israel's return to the land. Previous generations of Israelites had experienced and observed the mighty power of God associated with his deliverance of his people from foreign lands and bringing them into the promised land. That event of the Exodus is mentioned in this same prayer. Verse 35 gives another example. It talks about, quote, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, God has power over nature, in other words. He can and does stop rain because of the sin of his people Israel and has power, as the verse says later, to send it again. How about more examples? Verse 37 talks about famine in the land, pestilence, blight, mildew, locust, grasshopper, an enemy besieging them, plagues or sickness. We've learned a little bit about plagues these last couple of years. 
It's not something beyond our time or our era. According to God, uh, Solomon, God can act and has the power over all of these things to send them or to stop them, to bring healing and life to his people, or to use them for his greater purposes. There are additional comments about God's power in verse 41 and 42. Solomon foresees foreigners coming to Israel on account of the reports of God's power. 1 Kings 8.42 says, They will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. We see this in the account of Rahab who, and others in Jericho who had heard of all the mighty things that God had done for the Israelites in bringing them out of the land of Egypt and against the Egyptian army. And in her case, she responded positively to that in faith, accepting the God of Israel. God's hearing the prayers, which presupposes his omniscience and his omnipotence, also includes another aspect, his willingness to act or sometimes not act. We'll get to that in part two again this evening a little bit. But for now, the point to be made is that God's hearing the prayers, his positive response to the prayers should drive non-Jews to fear him. And that is one of the proper responses to God acting on our prayers. Solomon mentions this in verses 41 and 42 in relation to the foreigner, the non-Jew, the Gentile. He prays, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you, as do your people Israel. Solomon already said the same thing in relation to the Jew. In verse 40, he said about God acting, quote, that they, the Jews, may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you have given to our fathers. So I ask, when God responds positively to us, to our prayers, do we respond positively to him? When he answers our prayers, do we seek him? Do we draw closer to him? Does it bring us to fear him, to be in reverent awe of him, to be more dedicated and devoted to him? Or do we just enjoy the temporary deliverance or resolution of the situation without giving God a second thought? Even though we prayed for it, do we forget that God had something to do with the answer? Do we give credit to the instrument that God used, such as the doctor or the medicine, instead of ultimately giving credit to God? Do we give more credit to those things than to God? Do we recognize that God is the one who used those as his instrument and proclaim it in that way? Of course, our faith or our devotion to God, which faith and devotion aren't the same thing, but our faith or devotion to God should not be connected or ultimately tied to us getting what we ask for. But scripture does say that fearing God is an appropriate response 
to his hearing our prayers. And of course, there would be other appropriate responses such as gratitude, faith. This morning, we have talked about glimpses of God and Solomon's prayer. We still have a couple more glimpses that we could glean from this passage. And hopefully knowing that entices you to return this evening to hear more, to continue looking through this passage. We might have some time for questions and interaction as well, if you have any. But this morning we saw that God is unique and without equal, including in terms of his covenant faithfulness. God is also omnipresent. That is, he is present everywhere all at once. God is omniscient. He knows everything. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. God is all those things and much, much more. God is much more than the sum of his parts, so to speak, and we haven't mentioned all of those attributes or perfections. But lest there be any doubt, these things that we just affirmed about God are also true for each member of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, our God is amazing. God is awesome. He is wonderful. He is perfect. God is glorious, and God is beautiful. That is our God. He is the God whom we serve, and he is worthy of our praise and our worship. Amen.